Welcome to The Savvy Sauce, where we have practical chats for intentional living. I'm your host, Laura Duggar, and I'm so glad you're here. Today's message is not intended for little ears. We'll be discussing some adult themes, and I want you to be aware before you listen to this message. Dwell is an audio Bible app our family recently discovered, and now we love it. Dwell's mission is simple, to help you get in the Word and stay in the Word. And I think that is the ultimate practical application for intentional living. Visit dwellapp.io savvy to get a 20% discount today. We're going to discuss a topic that we have not yet covered on the Savvy Sauce, pornography addiction, specifically as it relates to women. Crystal Renaud Day is my guest today, and she's going to share how she eventually came to work with women from around the world and help bring them out of this addiction and lead them to meaningful recovery. Here's our chat. Welcome to the Savvy Sauce, Crystal. Thank you for having me, Laura. I'm glad to be here. Well, it's my pleasure, and we're just going to dive right in today. So will you take us back to an event that happened when you were 10 years old that put you on an unexpected trajectory? Yes. At the age of 10, I was home alone one afternoon. It wasn't uncommon for me to walk from the bus stop home. We live pretty close and enter into my house alone. Um, I was the youngest. I had older brothers who were older teenagers doing sports events or after school programs. And so I would just come home and kind of had my routine of, you know, watching TV, grabbing a snack, avoiding homework, the whole nine yards. But one afternoon, I had gone down to the basement, walked into my brother's bathroom, like I pretty much always did um, after school. And one day, in there on the counter was a pornographic magazine. And it was the first time I know I'd ever seen something like that. It was quite explicit. And I'm aging myself a little bit in terms of referring, you know, to pornography in the magazine or paper form. But at the time, that's what was available um, most conveniently, I suppose. And at first was pretty shocked by what it was because it really was a very provocative type of editorial pornography where the cover itself was of nude women. And so it wasn't just a centerfold type cover. It was actually, you know, a naked woman on the front of it. And I was really taken aback by that. Like I just really was intrigued. I was shocked, but my curiosity got the best of me. And instead of just kind of walking away from that moment and telling my mom what I found, I decided to engage in that material and began to look at that material, opened the pages and just began to feast on it, really just out of shock, awe, intrigue and curiosity. And I engaged in that type of behavior every day after that for quite a while. It wasn't always available on the counter. I actually had to go and look for it in the bathroom where he had it hidden underneath car magazines or his, you know, just bathroom cabinets because it was his own bathroom in, in the basement. And I kept doing that for quite a while until one day I couldn't find it again. And then that was kind of where it escalated from there in terms of different types of behavior. 
And so just thinking of a 10-year-old girl never exposed to this before, I can see where that would be a lot of emotions and very confusing. Did it make you feel more isolated coming across something like this? I really, at that point in time, hadn't really even had a really in-depth conversation about what sex was. I was 10 years old. I really hadn't had those conversations yet as a family or with my mom, at least not in, in detail. And so what I was seeing in the magazine was, in my way of thinking, rather educational and interesting and kind of, in some ways, it did kind of set the stage for how I saw sex and sexuality going forward. And I don't think any 10-year-old can comprehend that material in a way that you would look at it and say, this isn't realistic. This is not how sex is supposed to be. And so for me, it was confusing and also, like I said, very educational. Yeah, that makes sense. And you're saying, okay, you're the youngest in the family. Mm -hmm alone after school. What about God and Jesus and church and those type of things? Was that part of your home growing up? In part, it was. I certainly grew up with knowledge of faith and a knowledge of who Jesus is, but we did not go to church as a family very much. And there were other extenuating circumstances as to why that was. Um, my mom was and still is a devout believer, um, very strong believer. And my, my dad um, has his own faith journey, but it doesn't play out the way that you would necessarily like to see it um, in terms of church going and devotion and things like that. And that's how it was growing up. My dad traveled full time for his job. And so he wasn't around a whole lot. And my mom battled with uh, clinical depression when I, when I was eight years old for a couple of years. So we had gotten out of the habit of going to church. And by the time I was 10 and going, going on 11, which is about the time of my initial porn exposure, um, we weren't going to church. And so for me, there wasn't so much the Christian conviction going on in terms of what I was looking at. The conviction was more so about knowing from a, from a moral standpoint that this material was not intended for me. And yet, because of my own curiosity and how it satisfied some inner longings of my own heart, I ignored the, the warning signs and my conscience as far as why not to look at it. You have such a great way of articulating things. Could you just share the rest of your story with us? Sure. So, like I said, I was looking at pornography in my brother's bathroom regularly for, I mean, it's hard for me to look back and engage how many weeks or months that was. I mean, this is 25 years ago, but it was certainly for a long period of time, at least looking back on it. Um, and then one day the material, it was, was gone and I no longer could find it in the, in the bathroom. And I actually looked through his bedroom a little bit too. He, he doesn't know that part, <laughs> but I kind of, I kind of dug through his drawers and, and different things to see if he had it hidden. Cause for me, it was like, I was, I was hungry for it. I started to have kind of that addictive, behavior associated with it that I that all of a sudden it was gone and I couldn't get it back. And my parents did pretty much all they knew how to at that time in light of of technologies that were available to safeguard myself and my brothers from technology like the like TV and, and the internet. 
more so they were thinking about my brothers. They weren't thinking about actually me that was needing to be safeguarded, obviously. So we had dial-up internet, because I'm again aging myself, dial-up internet, and we had cable, both of which had certain restrictions on them. So the internet had filtering, the TV had a code for certain channels and certain content. And so I knew I really couldn't find my way and navigate so much through those means as much as I could maybe look through my dad's video cabinet, which he didn't have pornography, but he had like R-rated movies that had nudity in them and sex scenes and things like that, that I knew we weren't allowed to watch. And yet they weren't locked up. And so those were things I could then pull out after school and stick in the VCR, again, aging myself, and fast forward to the scenes that I could find that had nudity in them. And I would feast on that for a while. And then as I got a little bit older, maybe a year or two later, I was able to convince my brothers who had already hacked the TV code to let me know what the TV code was because I wanted to watch MTV or something that was blocked. And of course, they didn't realize that I actually wanted to watch a movie channel or adult content that was also available in those restricted areas of the cable. And so I did that regularly after school. And then eventually online, I figured out that you could get around filtering fairly easily, especially in that day and age, and was able to look stuff up online. I didn't know what the word pornography was. So I wasn't Googling or, or, you know, um, looking up pornography. I was looking up naked women, you know, sex, breast, penis, vagina, you know, stuff that I knew I knew could bring up potentially content that I could look at. And that transpired for quite a while. And I eventually started to stay after school for after school programs. But before the programs would begin, I would go to the library and search for pornography there. Um, I started to become, become more familiar with which sites I liked. And I would go to those so that I could, it would be quick access and getting to that material you know, quicker. And then over the course of time, my viewing became more physical in the sense of changes in my body and and things that this pornography would bring up in me, feelings of sexuality. And I began to compulsively masturbate along with this pornography use. And that went on for many, many years and including going online and chatting with strangers um, in a sexual capacity as well as phone sex call-in numbers at that time as well. And I engaged in all of this behavior in complete isolation and complete, completely alone. And at the age of 16, I went to a summer camp with my mom because we had just started going back to church. And at about 15 years old, I started going back to church. And at 16, I was invited to go to the youth group's summer camp. At that point, I really hadn't had a real come-to-faith moment other than when I was eight years old going to church. And so I went to summer camp, and I heard a sermon from the camp pastor talking about how I had a Father in Heaven who loved me and who loved me unconditionally. And for me, going back to what I was talking about before, my dad traveled full-time. When he was home, he wasn't particularly emotionally present for me. I didn't have a strong relationship with him really in any real strong capacity in terms of relating to him on on an emotional level. And there were other, again, extenuating circumstances because, you know, related to all of that. But suffice to say, I had a dad-shaped hole in my heart. 
And in a lot of ways, pornography was satisfying that intimacy and longing need that I had in a, in a counterfeit roundabout way. And when I heard that sermon at, at summer camp, and I heard that I had a father in heaven who loved me, who loved me unconditionally, that was something that as a very broken 16-year-old girl desperately wanted. I desperately wanted that to be true. And so I accepted the Lord as my savior at that summer camp. And I was convinced that, oh, I, I, I prayed this prayer, so I'm, gonna, I'm not going to have this sin trouble anymore. But that's not what happened for me. Um, if anything, the intensity to sin became greater and the intensity to act out became greater. And the shame aspect of it became much, much greater. And the conviction of it became much, much greater. But I didn't know who to talk to, who to share this with. In my mind, based on things I had read, sermons I had heard at church, everything that I'd heard told me this was a man's problem. And so as a female struggling with pornography, struggling with other um, sexual compulsive behaviors, for me, this was a guy's problem. There's something wrong with me. And if I tell someone, they're going to think I have three heads. And so I continue to kind of just suffer in silence and really struggled, but all the while trying my hardest to be the good Christian girl that I desperately desired to be and to follow, you know, what I, I believe God had you know, God's best for my life. And yet I had this tension of this pornography sin in my life. Um, and yet I led the high, you know, the high school Christian club in my school. I led worship in the youth ministry you know, I did all these good godly things, hoping that by doing all these good godly things that my sin would go away. And it never really did until until I met a woman at church who shared her story with me. And her story um, was not the clean and tidy, you know, testimony that we like to think that we all have. But really, she shared with me the heart issues that she had, the fact that she had a pornography addiction as a teenager. And I was 18, 19 years old at the time. And she was 22, 23, something like that. And so she was sharing this, her story with me. And when I heard her say to me, I had a pornography addiction throughout my high school years, I was shocked. I was almost as shocked to hear that as I was at 10 years old, finding that magazine for the first time, realizing that I wasn't the only one, realizing that other women struggle in this way and that she's telling me that she used to struggle in this way, which means there's hope for me beyond this bondage that I've lived in for almost a decade. And when she told me her story, I had a choice to make in that moment. I could either say, wow, that's an amazing story. Or I could say, you know what? Me too. Which, which of course are the most powerful words in the English language is the ability to say me too. I resonate with your story. And I hear my story and yours. And thankfully, I had the, the courage or the wherewithal or the, you know, God's you know, divine encounter to say me too to this woman. And I was able to then enter into a relationship of accountability with her, as well as go to counseling and dig into why was this an issue for me? And what did meaningful recovery look like for me? And I'm now almost there. I'll be, I'll be 36 this fall. And I've been porn-free since about the age of 20. Wow. Praise God for that. That's incredible. And just to go back to a few 
parts of your story, first of all, just to say thank you, because we have no idea who's hearing this today and maybe is thinking me too for the first time. And there is scripture that leads us to believe that when we bring something into the light, that that's where some of the freedom comes. Mm -hmm. And so for you, I was just wondering, at that moment when you first confessed me too, did anything change right then? I think the biggest change that happened for me when I was able to say me too and begin to share a little bit more of my own journey with somebody else, there was an immediate lifting of shame. And there was an immediate lifting of kind of, of the burden that I had been carrying for so long. Because what had been in the dark was now in the light. And I knew that by confessing to her that day, it couldn't go back in the dark because darkness had been exposed to light. I knew, I knew in that moment there was no turning back. Like there was no going back into hiding because I knew that because I shared there was hope. And then from that point forward, what did your process look like for coming out of this addiction? First and foremost, there was the need to, I mean, you do have to come to that point of surrender and say, you know, I have become powerless to this issue and that I need not just the help of others, but really fully surrendering um, this issue to God. And for me, even though I had been the good Christian girl, as far as it looked on the outside, I don't think that for me personally, I had ever fully surrendered this issue to God and said, I am powerless over this and I need your help and that I, that I can't do this on my own. There was this, I can't show God this part of me, even though of course we know he already saw it. But I think that there was an unwillingness to really face this issue and say, I'm powerless to this. And I need, I need your help. Um, and so for me, it was a combination of, of that surrender posture and saying that this is, this is something that I need your help with, but also surrendering to accountability and having somebody in my life who is going to ask me how I'm doing, who's going to be there at times of temptation, who is going to um, support me at times when I slip up and will pray with me at times of temptation and struggle. And then for me as well, the process of, of healing fully, because I believe that healing from pornography addiction is not just a behavioral thing. Um, it's holistic. Um, and so body, mind, and spirit for those who are believers. And for me, it was needing to not just cold turkey stop behaviors, but go to counseling and deal with the emotional roots of this issue, the things that were that were keeping me in bondage was not necessarily because it felt good to act out, but because it satisfied a deeper pain in my life. And so I had to learn how to reconcile my emotions and reconcile my feelings and embrace my feelings and experience my emotions and deal with the hurts that I had um, so that I didn't have to rely on outward things to medicate my pain. Um, and so for me, counseling was a, was a major component to my healing. And with that, do you find, because you have mentioned so many times people think this is just a struggle for men. Mm -hmm. And so for women, do you think it's a similar root cause or root issue for women who struggle with this? Or do you think it's any type of pain that may lead 
to a pornography addiction? I think any kind of pain has the susceptibility to be medicated in negative ways. So it doesn't have to be pornography. It can be alcohol. It can be drugs. It can be food, shopping. So there's any number of addictions that can transpire as a result of emotional pain and the way that we self-medicate. But for pornography, specifically for the women that I've worked with as a pastoral counselor and a recovery coach, um, a lot of the underlying roots of pornography addiction lie in some significant father issues and then lack of affection and, and, and proper intimacy in childhood and adolescence. And that kind of leads them into kind of the porn trap because pornography is it's such a counterfeit and such a, a lie as it relates to intimacy and affection and love. But it satisfies because it hits that pleasure center of the brain and provides the relief that the heart needs. And when you say the father issue at the core of it, is that for females and males or are you saying specifically for women? Specifically for women, but men certainly have their own emotional pain that can be medicated through pornography as well. A lot of men, it's, it is fatherlessness or it's difficult relationships with mom. And it can be, it really can be any kind of emotional pain that you're using to medicate. I need to pause this for a moment so that we can hear a message from today's sponsor. I'm excited to tell you about today's sponsor, Dwell App. Dwell is an audio Bible app with loads of inspiring voices, Bible translations, and original background music. I think you're going to love listening to scripture through the Dwell app. You can start a daily habit of engaging with God through Dwell's many listening plans. They also have tons of scripture playlists, like ones based on mood. So no matter what you're feeling, you can immediately be comforted and encouraged by the Word of God. Playlists include, I'm feeling tempted, I'm feeling stressed, and I'm feeling ashamed. There are also sleep playlists, and those include gentle music to help you fall asleep to scripture. And one of the most requested features, a sleep timer, is now also available on Dwell. That means you get to fall asleep to your favorite books and stories of the Bible without losing your spot or draining your battery. So you can end your day with God's word in your ears and on your heart. You can even try it tonight. So to get started with Dwell, I want you to know that they're offering Savvy Sauce listeners an amazing deal. Just go to dwellapp.io slash savvy to get a 20% discount. That's dwellapp.io slash savvy for 20% off an annual or lifetime subscription. I hope you enjoy. Thanks for the sponsorship. So as you look back, what would you say are some of the most important lessons that Jesus taught you through your journey? I think the biggest lesson that I had to learn really with regard to porn use in my recovery journey is learning to decipher God's voice, the voice of God from the voice of the enemy. Because as you're experiencing healing and you're looking back and looking at all the things that you've done 
And especially if you're in recovery and you're still slipping up and having some difficulty in your recovery journey. As I'm exposing old wounds and looking at how I medicated and the things that I did that I had a lot of shame about, the voice of the enemy speaks death and it speaks shame and it speaks to worthlessness. God's voice speaks life and God's voice speaks quietly into your spirit and he speaks love and grace and mercy and forgiveness and so if we're entertaining the other conversations if you're not good enough or you've done too much or the feelings of shame and guilt and just how loud the enemy speaks that's when we stay in bondage that's when we stay in sin because the more worthless we feel the further into sin we go and so for me, it was learning to embrace the grace that I've been given and that my sin is forgiven. And that even though I have a lot of behaviors in my past to feel shame about, they're covered by the blood of the lamb. And that I can walk in the grace that I've been given and not live in the past of where I was. That's incredible to get to hear it on this side Picking up with your story then, what was it like to share this more publicly, even privately with people that you love, maybe your family? I was perfectly fine with the idea of becoming well and never sharing my story again. I never intended for this to be something that I went public with. I really had the notion that, you know, thank you, Jesus, for my healing, and let's never talk about it again. So for a very long time, the only people who knew my story were the woman who I confessed to and who became my accountability partner and my friend and my my mentor and my counselor. And that was it for a many number of years, four or five years. Never shared about it with anybody else. And when you're in recovery and you're dealing with these issues, that's okay. It doesn't have to be something that everybody knows about. In fact, you should only be talking about it with people who are safe. For me, even though I was close to my mom, it was never something that I wanted to bring up to her, uh, mainly because I knew that she would blame herself and have a lot of guilt. And so I tried to spare her that as well. But at the age of 19, I started working Even though I was in my early recovery, I started working for a church in a communications capacity. I was working in like marketing and graphics and was on staff at that church for seven years. But about five years into my tenure there, our pastor, it had been revealed that he had been having a long-term affair with another staff member. And at this point, no one knew my story except for my, my mentor, accountability partner, and my counselor. And yet when that transpired, when that event happened, it was kind of the catalyst to me beginning to say, I have a story that needs to be told because you never know who in your life is experiencing sexual brokenness and who needs to hear that there's a hope for meaningful recovery. And so I really felt God was impressing on me as a result of what had transpired to begin sharing my story with other women. And that started in a very modest way. I had gone to our director of counseling at at our church at the time, and I had said, I really have a heart for wanting to have a group for women who have pornography addiction. And of course, he's like, 
okay, like, why? And why do you want to do this? They have known me since I was 15, 16 years old. So like, they were looking at me like, I didn't, why, why are you wanting to do this group? And then, so then I had to begin to kind of share about my past and say, well, here's why, because I had been a woman who was hooked on pornography and really wreaked havoc on her life. And so I started leading a group at my church for that. Um, and because it was going to be in the church bulletin and all this stuff, I had to tell my mom, hey, I'm going to be leading this group. And she was confused at first. And then I had to explain to her, you know, why. And it went much better in explaining to her, you know, my story than I thought. And which I told her sooner. Obviously, which I wish I told her at 10 years old. But I started leading the group. I started to write blogs about it and different things. And then over the course of time, um, the New York Times came around because they had somehow caught wind of my blog, what I was doing. And so they wanted to write an article on the church and on women and pornography addiction in this group that I was leading. And because my story was about to go major public, because most people don't have that experience of having their their story, you know, spread across a major newspaper, I had to have private conversations with my family. And those all went very well as well. My brother had some guilt for a little bit. My dad was actually very gracious towards me in a way that I believe was God ordained. And so as that article was released and I had some momentum with my blog, I started to feel like this was not just, you know, a group in my church. This is not just a blog. This is an untapped ministry need for women across the world because of the messages I was getting regularly. And kind of one thing led to another. And here I am today <laughs> as far as how it all evolved and grew. That's incredible to hear that path and how you've helped so many women now. You've probably been one of the leaders to help people understand that this is an issue for men and women. So will you just tell us some of the common myths that we believe about pornography? Some of the common myths I think I really want to address today are the myths related to female porn use, because I think by and large, we've come to accept that men watch pornography. Whether or not we know why, we kind of understand it to a certain extent, why men watch pornography or view pornography. I think what the confusion comes in is why women would be. Because some of the common myths of pornography use is that it's visual and women aren't visually stimulated. That's one of the common myths. And really, that is a myth because it's, it's not true. I mean, women are created to be sexual beings, just like men. God created us to be sexual. And part of our sexuality is what we see. And what we see does create feelings in our bodies. And so just like for men, women are also visually stimulated. We are more emotionally connected than men, but we are definitely visually stimulated. Other common myths, people may think that porn consumers are predatory or pedophiles or are perverted, when in fact, it's, you know, would you ever tell a 10-year-old that they're perverted? Probably not, because in most porn use doesn't begin in adulthood. Most porn use begins innocently in childhood through curiosity. 
and it's a manifestation and an escalation of porn use. And so it doesn't start out with compulsive use. It starts out with curiosity for a vast majority of porn users. And so we need to have better grace, I guess, and better understanding of those who struggle with pornography and provide greater outlet for them to get the help that they need. And along with that, you have paralleled that with some truth, but are there any other truths that would be helpful to be aware of as it relates to sexual addictions and pornography? Yeah, I think the biggest truth about sexual addictions and pornography is to understand that at the core of these addictions is by and large an intimacy disorder. Somewhere along the way, whether it was in childhood or adolescence or even it can be adult trauma as well, you've experienced something that has either you didn't get the proper intimacy and affection that you needed as a child and may have some attachment issues or something happened in adolescence to provide the same. And so pornography and sexual addictions, by and large, are a result of a lack of something, a lack of intimacy, a lack of affection that was shown to them and pornography, whether it was sought out intentionally or discovered accidentally, it's satisfying those those deeper longings and those those core wounds that are there. And so that's probably the biggest truth is that it's not just because someone's a sex crazed lunatic or is highly sexual or has a higher sex drive than somebody else. It has to do with the fact that these issues are a replacement for healthy intimacy and healthy sexuality and healthy affection in their lives, but that there is meaningful recovery for that. And that just makes me wonder for any other parents listening, what do you want to make sure that the parents know? First and foremost, if you have daughters, they are not exempt from these issues. Clearly, I I was one of them. And even though, like like I said before, my parents did everything they thought they knew to protect my brothers, they didn't realize that it was also me that needed to be protected. And as parents, I I love speaking to parents on these issues, particularly how to train parents on technology and safeguarding their homes and devices for their children, because it's all about having open dialogue. And so it's important that parents are talking to their children at even very young ages about sex, about what sex is and what it isn't, and how pornography is a counterfeit for God's design for sex. And that your kids begin to understand that. And so when they are exposed to porn, because it's not about if, it's about when, they will know that this is this is not for me. This is a counterfeit to what God's design for sex is. And that because you've had these conversations and open dialogue with your children, they can come to you and feel safe to say, I stumbled upon pornography today, or I saw something today that upset me. And having those open conversations and making sure that you're a safe person for your kid to come to and have these conversations with. And the biggest thing for I always try to advocate for the parent is be the parent. You're allowed to put safeguards in place. You're allowed to see what your kids are doing on their phones and devices. You're allowed to make boundaries in your home about what they can and cannot see and really want to advocate parents in that regard. Okay. With your response, you mentioned 
this open dialogue and even talking to our children about sex from a young age, is there a certain age that you're seeing that this is too late? They're most likely already exposed. Well, the average age of a boy being exposed to pornography is eight years old, and the average age for a girl is 11. The age of girls is getting younger and younger as well. So we're talking young. When I'm talking about talking to your child about sex, I'm talking about talking to your child about sex at five, six, seven years old. And you're talking to them in an age-appropriate way, of course. And there's great resources for that as well. There's a great book series called God's Design for Sex. Dana Brenna Jones, yeah, God's Design for Sex series. And it has four different books based on different age ranges. And so you can pick the one that's suitable for your child's age and begin to talk to them about God's design for sex. And then if your child has access to the internet, then it's time to talk about pornography. So if they're on your phone and there's no safeguards and there's nothing in place to keep them from, you know, grabbing the browser and searching, then that's the age that pornography needs to be talked about. Hey everyone, the Bible frequently advises us to put into action what we are learning. That is one of our prayers behind the Savvy Sauce podcast, that each of us would experience transformation as we walk in step with the Spirit to apply the knowledge we've learned. One way to do that is by taking these conversations one step further and using the resources that partner with each of these episodes. If you are going to purchase any of these resources, we invite you to do that through our show notes. It costs you nothing extra, but it does provide a tiny kickback to help fund our efforts at The Savvy Sauce. Our team personally does this, and we hope that you will too, by visiting thesavvysauce.com and clicking either on today's episode title to access the show notes or visit our resources tab to find all recommended resources. We hope you find these books and products to be beneficial to your life. You've mentioned meaningful recovery. I kind of have two follow-up questions with that. First of all, if you could lay out what was most meaningful for that recovery. And then for you now working on the other side, working with clients, what does your process look like to lead them toward wholeness? I firmly believe in total restoration, total healing, total redemption so that this is not something that you have to go back to later in life. This is not a life sentence for you. So meaningful recovery goes back to the conversation of a holistic recovery. So looking at your your pornography addiction and your pornography use and realizing and understanding it's not just about behavior. Because I get so many emails from women who are saying, I really want to stop watching porn, or I really want to stop this compulsive masturbation issue that I have. And of course, it's masked in behavior, as opposed to, you know, I need healing for why I'm going to these things for comfort. And so meaningful recovery is looking at it from a holistic approach. It's looking at it as body, meaning it's physical, absolutely. Mind, meaning it's emotional and mental. And spirit, meaning it's also about fully surrendering these issues to God and getting your intimacy needs, especially if you're single as a single woman, your intimacy needs met by God and through healthy relational behavior, friendships and family and things like that. Um, And so it's a holistic approach to recovery. And that's what what I mean by meaningful. 
for me, that was the approach that I was given. And I'm thankful that that was the approach that, that I walked into. Because had I just tried to stop behavior, that's not long lasting. When you just try to cold turkey behavior, there is something that can happen as well where you have a transference of addiction. So you go from, okay, I'm not, I'm not watching pornography anymore, I'm not masturbating anymore, and yet I'm compulsively eating, or I'm now shopping, or I'm addicted to exercise, or there's something else that you're filling the void with that you're not healing from. And so it's really important that recovery is looking at the bigger picture and getting down to what's the root cause? What are you medicating and how do you heal that part? And that's different for everyone in terms of the, of the healing that needs to take place. Because some people, there's there's been sexual abuse. Some people, there's been some kind of trauma or some kind of relational void. And you're having to, to learn how to heal that and get through those root issues in a way that, again, is a meaningful recovery so that you can learn healthy coping skills, healthy ways of dealing with different emotional stimuli that might come. So that's a broad answer, but I think hopefully that, that rounds it out. I think that's a great answer. And you mentioned a few ways to come alongside someone who's single, but maybe it's a good time to touch on that myth that marriage is going to fix your pornography addiction. So can you speak to that? Yeah, absolutely. That goes back to the, the myths of pornography use as well, because um, a lot of the time, I mean, I was single for a long time. I got married at 33. So I was single in my recovery and then single for you know quite a while there after my recovery. But I get this question a lot or not, not so much the question, but there's actually a firm belief from a lot of single women who struggle with pornography and, and compulsive masturbation that, oh, if I could just get married then I, I wouldn't have this struggle because then I could have sex whenever I want and have those, those sexual desires and sexual drive needs met. That's a flawed way of looking at it on multiple levels because if, if you're married or you know married women, sex does not fix all in a, in a marriage and a relationship. In fact, sex is complicated and sex is it's not always what you expect it to be all the time. But the bigger issue is that you can't look at sex and marriage as methadone or as a way to satisfy an addiction because then you could again you go back to the transference of addiction right so you go from okay i'm addicted to pornography and masturbation but now i'm going to be addicted to sex with my spouse or addicted to my spouse which is a very unhealthy model and very unhealthy way of looking at marriage so it's vitally important that as much as you can before marriage to enter into meaningful recovery because it's not going to get better with marriage. It's going to be compounded by a multitude of other issues. I think that's a fair warning and just also encouragement that it's never too late. Crystal, what is the hardest part of working in ministry, specifically this unique type of ministry? I've been doing this ministry now for over a decade and working with women in this capacity and then working in this capacity in the public eye for over a decade now. And I think that the hardest part is acceptance. People continuing to not see women as consumers of pornography. And there's still a little bit of denial about women being the ones who struggle 
Um, it might not even be denial as much as it's just ill-informed, you know, um, about these issues. And particularly as it relates to the church, um, I have rarely heard a sermon on a Sunday morning where you're, where you're tackling pornography from the pulpit and you're saying men and women struggle with pornography. It's usually about husbands, dads, men, honor your wives, honor your daughters by not watching pornography. So the, so the issue is that it's been ongoing even for the last 10 years is I'm still trying to break down some of those barriers and getting women invited to the table into the dialogue and conversation about porn use. I think that's really helpful. And hopefully today's conversation is a catalyst for some people to begin engaging in healthy conversations with other believers and seeing if they can come alongside others who are struggling with this. Mm -hmm. And just looking at 2020, just it's been quite the year. So how has the global pandemic affected women's pornography use? My clientele, my specific clientele as it relates to women who have pornography and sexual addiction, it has grown exponentially since March 2020, since the beginning of the pandemic um, in terms of our and the, of the United States' closures and isolations and quarantines. And I actually was part of a news piece for a local TV here in Kansas City recently talking about that, about how, how the pandemic specifically has affected um, addiction and women's pornography use and addiction specifically because it has grown and it's continuing to grow as this quarantine continues, as this isolation has continued. Um, a couple of different reasons for that is what I'm seeing, though, is because there's isolation, because there's a lack of community, a lack of um, affection, intimacy, just being able to see somebody and feeling seen and known, it's kind of feeding into these this need to kind of have that outlet for those heart needs um, that just aren't being met in a, in a physical way um, in person right now. And it's causing women who maybe had a porn issue in the past, it's coming back up again in them. It's causing women who maybe didn't have a porn problem at all, but because they're alone and isolated, they're starting to gravitate toward erotica and novels. And then of course that leads into other porn use there's many reasons, but a lot of it just comes down to the isolation and the stress and anxiety that so many people have been feeling over the last several months. It's been such a dark time for so many people for so many reasons. But as we're winding down our time together today, what encouragement would you like to leave for everyone? That there's hope. The biggest thing that someone who struggles with addiction needs to hear is that there's hope for meaningful recovery, especially women who feel alone in their struggle. And so there's hope for meaningful recovery and you're not alone. And there are opportunities for you to get the help and healing that you need. Yes, that is certainly true. And you may be one of those resources, whether that's one of the books that you've written or for potential clients to connect with you online. So can you share the way that people could find you if they would like to reach out? 
Yeah, the easiest way to reach me for this issue of pornography and sexual addiction is through my recovery website, and that is sherecovery.com. So S-H-E recovery.com. Um, and there you can find contact information for me, um, as well as, you know, ways to maybe enter into coaching or, or counseling or a weekly recovery group, um, as well as books and resources. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing that, Crystal. We will certainly link to that both in our show notes and on our resources tab of our website. And you know that we're called the Savvy Sauce because savvy is synonymous with practical knowledge or insight. And so as my final question for you today, what is your Savvy Sauce? My Savvy Sauce is start journaling. If you're dealing with emotions that you can't seem to really understand or able to really distinguish or discern, start to journal about them. Um, this can be done in, in different ways. You can, you can journal prayers and how you're feeling. You can journal about the actual circumstances that have triggered you emotionally. And one of the best ways and, and neatest ways that I've seen lately is using a mood tracker app on your phone. There's one called Jade, J-A-D-E for Android and one called Dalio, D-A-Y-L-I-O for iPhone. And those trackers specifically will kind of ping you throughout the day and ask how you're doing. And so it's kind of a neat way for you to kind of begin to discern and distinguish your moods and your emotions and see how you're doing. And what the, what the apps do is they can show you charts of your most average emotions. And so that way you can kind of see how are you most often and maybe why and begin to distinguish and start journaling through, you know, why is this my go-to emotion and feeling and begin to kind of dig deeper into those issues. Oh, those are very helpful tips. Thank you for mentioning all of that. This time has just felt so peaceful and calming because you just share that presence. And I appreciate your kindness and your vulnerability and transparency to share your story. I have no doubt that God's going to use that to draw others to him and draw others to this journey of meaningful and full restoration and healing. So thank you for being my guest today. Thank you, Laura. And thank you for taking the time to address this issue and helping to bring a greater conversation and dialogue to female addiction issues. One more thing before you go. Have you heard the term gospel before? It simply means good news. And I want to share the best news with you but it starts with the bad news. Every single one of us were born sinners and God is perfect and holy, so he cannot be in the presence of sin. Therefore, we're separated from him. This means there's absolutely no chance we can make it to heaven on our own. So for you and for me, it means we deserve death and we can never pay back the sacrifice we owe to be saved. We need a savior. But God loved us so much, He made a way for His only Son to willingly die in our place as the perfect substitute. This gives us hope of life forever in right relationship with Him. That is good news. Jesus lived the perfect life we could never live and died in our place for our sin. This was God's plan to make a way to reconcile with us so that God can look at us and see Jesus. We can be covered and justified through the work Jesus finished, if we choose to receive what he has done for us. 
Romans 10, 9 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus to take our place. I pray someone today, right now, is touched and chooses to turn their life over to you. Will you clearly guide them and help them take their next step in faith to declare you as Lord of their life? We trust you to work and change the lives now for eternity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you prayed that prayer, you are declaring him for me, so me for him. You get the opportunity to live your life for him. At this podcast, we are called Savvy for a reason. We want to give you practical tools to implement the knowledge you have learned. So you're ready to get started? First, tell someone. Say it out loud. Get a Bible. The first day I made this decision, my parents took me to Barnes & Noble to get the Quest NIV Bible, and I love it. Start by reading the book of John. Get connected locally, which basically means just tell someone who is part of the church in your community that you made a decision to follow Christ. I'm assuming they will be thrilled to talk with you about further steps, such as going to church and getting connected to other believers to encourage you. We want to celebrate with you too, so feel free to leave a comment for us if you made a decision for Christ. We also have show notes included where you can read scripture that describes this process. Finally, be encouraged. Luke 15.10 says, In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The heavens are praising with you for your decision today. If you've already received this good news, I pray that you have someone else to share it with today. You are loved, and I look forward to meeting you here next time.